0: Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. What goes on in their minds, how they approach their work and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This week, my guest is Doug Gimishy. Doug hails from Melbourne, Australia, and I was lucky enough to meet up with him here in London during the week of the Wildlife Photographer of the Year and Wild Screen Film Festival. And Doug was at these events as another award winner, and he continues to stay at the forefront of wildlife conservation and animal welfare photography. Back home in Australia, Doug focuses on local subjects and also campaigns at a local and national level I don't want to waste any more time talking. We packed a lot into this one and Doug had just flown in from Australia. So it was a heroic effort. I hope you enjoy it. Doug, welcome to London. And thank you so much for not just taking the time to come over This is the first time in a long time that I've had guests face-to-face in my studio. And um, you have uh, come a long, long way from Australia. and. You know, props to you for actually just being awake. Yes,
1: no, thank you. My absolute pleasure. It's uh, been a long time that Australians have been allowed to leave the country, so that is fine. That's
0: right. Yeah, it's funny how with COVID you kind of can quickly forget. I mean, no one's wearing masks anymore, but of course Australia was pretty strict, wasn't it? We had a
1: 262 day lockdown in Melbourne, which uh, made uh, photography a little bit difficult.
0: <laughs> but if you come out of the the traps flying since then, I mean, you're you know producing lots of content all the time, pretty active on social media, working on so many fronts. Did did, did being held back mean that you came out and, right, you needed to do everything that you've been
1: doing? Gave me 262 days to clean up my emails, so I suddenly had no administration to do and I could go out and shoot. Um, I mean, we could still travel uh, at one stage five kilometres from home and at another stage 25 kilometres from home, and I pretty much focus most of my work on conservation stories close to home, so there were some limitations but it wasn't as onerous um, for me as it probably was for a lot of people. And I must admit, I quite enjoyed the quiet. I mean, because of the lockdowns, the skies were silent. I lived near the bay, and so there were no jet skis, no motorboats, and it was really quite nice for wildlife. I got some beautiful Gannett photography uh, close to home um, and some um, photos that uh, we'll probably talk about in uh, Wildlife Photography of the Year close to home. It was just quiet, and I, I really, that part, I enjoyed
0: yeah, that's great, isn't it? And I think that's that was a story for so many for is for mm. mm. And then and, and interesting to see now what also is coming out in the competitions, in the kind mm. of major publications are people turning their attention to close to home, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah, and look, I think it was great for animal welfare. I mean, we have a s- subspecies of dolphin in Port Phillip Bay, where uh, close to where I live, and some research found for the first time they could communicate with each other across the bay because there were no Jet wow. skis or no, no noise, environmental noise. And I think uh, a lot of wildlife benefited from the natural quiet that, that came from that.
0: Yeah, 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 fascinating. Mm. So why are you here? What are you doing in London? Obviously, apart from you're featuring on my podcast. Yeah,
1: well, I, I, I came for the <laughs> podcast, but I'm staying for other things. <laughs> um, i have uh, lucky enough to have an image this year in Wildlife Photography of the Year. Uh, it's in a uh, single image in the photojournalism section called uh, wombat lockdown and it was taken during a covert lockdown in melbourne and the the story is basically a girl i got to know pretty well during our bushfires four months beforehand had come to melbourne from her wombat sanctuary about 450 kilometers away uh, with three baby wombats in tow to do a little bit of work in melbourne just for a day or two and she got stuck when the ring of steel went up around melbourne and she wasn't allowed to leave and she's living in a uh, top four apartment about seven or eight kilometres from the city and she had to look after these three baby wombats and couldn't leave and it was a beautiful <laughs> story because uh, what she would do is she she was growing grass on her balcony from the area where the wombats would go back to because uh, their gut biome needs to become accustomed to the type of soil uh, and and uh, environments you'd be feeding them soil and sticks from the area uh, but living in this top floor apartment and we were both trained initially as microbiologists, so we were pretty comfortable uh, being in close contact. And this was really early on in the pandemic. This was uh, May, so not much was known about COVID, but it was still within our uh, 25-kilometre travel distance. So I'd go to her apartment and I'd fully PPE up and wipe down my equipment before and after, and I was sort of just documenting her work. And the photo in this year's wildlife photographer of the year is of her working from home with... Uh, Two baby wombats, Landon and
0: Branson, sitting
1: on her couch in a homemade pouch, enjoying the sun.
0: It's beautiful. Actually, I've just, I've just, Doug's just show me um, uh, the the picture, and mm. again, it's it to me, it definitely has your your style and your feel, and it's mm. there's some humour in it as well. Mm. Of course, it's sort of everyday scene of someone sitting on their laptop, but just happened to have a couple of sleeping wombats next to them.
1: And it's it's funny. It's it's a beautiful photo, but it's a it's a sad story because the reason she's looking after them is that her their parents their mothers um which survived the bushfires that virtually devastated everywhere where emily and the gungara wombat orphanage is uh subsequently a few months after surviving our bushfires got hit by cars and so they they're orphans and that happens with a lot of marsupials in australia because um they're in the pouch the parents the mothers take the brunt of the force um and so the wombats can often survive, which is a really important message for people listening, especially in Australia. With um, whoever see a wombat hit, it's always important to check the pouch because there could be a live young wombat in there that's um, dying this slow, awful death of hypothermia, or hypothermia, or dehydration, or starvation. So, for me, um, road trauma is is a big issue for us in Australia, especially. And I call it road trauma versus road kill because we know that about 50% of all animals hit don't die straight away. So they'll either, um, if it's a kangaroo, hop off into the into the bush and die these horrible deaths or uh, live uh, a life maimed. But it's not only a trauma for the for the animal. For most people, hit an animal is traumatic, and it's traumatic for the carers as well, and traumatic for the infants. So you know, I think, to me, I'm hoping that people will read the copy and understand that there's an important animal welfare message in there, which is, a, slow down and b check pouches if you if you drive past one and just don't assume the dead body on the side of the road is the only um body that's been impacted by this car
0: yeah that is great advice and we'll put it out there for sure yeah, and it's yeah. so sad you know when you think about what well, their homes are being burnt down and yeah. then as a result of that their chances of them getting hit are mm-hmm. that much greater it's just so brutal i mean it's already tough to be an animal living in the wild to survive yeah. And then the you know the odds are so stacked against you and then that can happen. Well,
1: and, and the bushfires were brutal for um, our wildlife, obviously for the reason for the, for the bushfires. I mean, the, the data is now three billion animals burnt to death. And I, I say the frame burnt to death because it's not like a quick death. It's, you know, anyone who can understand burning is, is awful. But then what happened when the rains came uh, for the wombats, you go, great, it's rain. But because there's so much ash, the rain... Came effectively uh, turned the ash on the ground into mudslides and it filled up their burrows. And so then some were drowning from mudslides um, and there's no food. And so these horrific impacts of, of bushfires and climate change go on a lot longer. And, and I think for me, it drove home that virtually all conservation issues are animal welfare issues. And Mm -hmm. we sometimes talk about our species going extinct or species numbers reducing, but you know, that's because they're starving to death or they're being drowned or burnt or something else. So for me, I, I view virtually all, um, conservation issues now as animal welfare issues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've already touched on you being very active kind of post post COVID. Um, and you've also mentioned briefly that you, Worked in bioethics, and you know one of the things I think well you're my only guest that basically took up photography at the age of forty eight. So there's a story in there, you know, in itself. And one of the things that we often talk about, you know, me and you know Neil, my colleague on the Mm. book, and and Andy, and photographers of a similar age is. How hard it must be for young people to get into this field, mm. but you decided to start it at forty-eight. So I can only assume that you must have, you know, some massive trust fund. Well, <laughs> I, I, I,
1: I, my background—it's—it's it's a sort of an interesting story. I always wanted to be a, a National Geographic photographer, and um, I did a zoology degree um, at university. And this was in the days of film, and I, I tried for a year, but I wasn't good enough. And there's probably a lot of reasons. One was. Um, technical skill and secondly I was never trained and also maybe my confidence and maybe, look, maybe even my passion and I, I diverted my career for for many years. I did a few years research as a zoologist and botanist but ended up um, working in pharmaceuticals and ended up being a, a director of a multinational pharmaceutical company um, and you know, my joke is, how do you become a conservation photographer with $100,000 in the bank? It's really quite easy. You start 10 years earlier with a million. <laughs> and for me, it was, I made the decision that I um, wanted to follow my passion. And I'd, I'd been doing some other conservation work more as a corporate role. I sat on um, the board of Environment Victoria, but it was very corporate with my corporate skills because I was a suit. And I was also lead governor of WWF in Australia. But I, I realized, um, as a conservationist, a, a more powerful way to um, influence people in the world was by good imagery. And also, I just wanted to get back and, and do it. And so I, I picked up the camera again. I just tried for a but few were you, years.
0: But during that, during this long period, I mean, I don't know how long we're talking. From you know, oh, having a dream I, I, of-
1: from from mid mid eighties to. Um, Late two thousand ten, right? And when
0: was photography? Obviously, photography went through a huge shift during that time, from film mm, to digital. Never,
1: did, never picked up a camera. Never picked up a camera. Besides a you know point and shoot for holiday
0: yeah.
1: photos, and uh, I mean, what really happened was I decided to do a holiday to Antarctica, and I thought, well, if I'm going, it's only it's a once in a lifetime trip, and I might as well take some good equipment. So I got some you know pretty good equipment. And I took some photos and I fell in love with it again. And then I, there was a website that was called National Geographic Your Shot, which is now an Instagram site. And I put some images up and the editors liked it. And then one contacted me for one. And then I thought, oh, that's not too bad. And I carried on a little bit. And then I just started entering competitions. And I, at this stage, I wasn't a serious photographer. And then I got a photo and wildlife photographer of the year. And that sort of gave me a bit of confidence. And then I made the decision that I would uh, quit my corporate work and focus on photography and try and make a difference that way but i had been i guess for conservation trying to make a difference being um a, a, on a board and doing more the corporate side but uh, there wasn't really an artistic outlet and i sort of seemed to be okay at it and i sort of loved it and um but yeah it was a it was a god geez close to a 35 year gap
0: wow that's amazing but you also Have a degree
1: in zoology is that right yes i've got a uh, degree in zoology and microbiology yeah um and in one of my many midlife crises i ended up uh, doing a masters of environmental policy and governance and also a masters of bioethics partly with peter singer and i don't know if your listeners might know peter singer peter singer is the gentleman who basically um, started the whole concept of animal welfare and sentience Uh, he's co-junct professor at both princeton and melbourne university and i think oxford or cambridge so he's a pretty smart dude um and um, he doing that was one of the keystone parts that made me realize that conservation is an animal welfare issue as well because there's suffering and and pain and it's it's an important thing to address
0: yeah and were you concerned uh, at the in the in the early days of photography also a lot of photographers now who are working in the conservation field would have been maybe five ten years ago you know pure wildlife photographers looking for technically beautiful images of wildernesses and you know those kind of days of you know we talk about this a lot on the podcast you know disappearing I And mean, even if you just look at what is being shown now in some of the major competitions is much more conservation focused because these organizations wildlife photographer of the year or European Wildlife mm. Photography, the Year. You know, they they have a responsibility in a way because they've got this great platform to show to millions of people that the imagery is, you know, changed in terms of what's getting recognition and also storytelling. So, did you think when you went into photography, you know, you, you already knew that this is what you were going to do was tell stories and try and get you know, exposure yeah. to some of these much needed? You know, Absolutely,
1: campaigns? I'm a conservationist who takes photos, not a photographer who works. In, in conservation. Um, I've always been, uh, I guess, um, a greenie is a good way to to put it, which sounds a bit ironic as I you know was wearing a suit in a pharmaceutical company, but I've always cared about the environment and animal welfare. And for me, um, it was always about two things. It was about the wildlife, but it was also about the people. And something that I've realized early on, or I thought early on, was that You know, most conservation issues are caused by people and most conservation issues are solved by people. Therefore, you'll probably see 40% of my photos have people in them, either doing good things or doing bad things. Normally, good things. um, But I think for me, my photos, if they're visually attractive, great. But at the end of the day, I want photos that drive people to behavior. And whether that's to start doing something, or stop doing something, or change what they're doing. To me, if a photo doesn't have an impact, that's behavioural. It's a bit of a waste because even if people go, "Wow, that's really important," I wasn't aware, and do nothing. Well, nothing sort of changed. So, I'm very conscious of driving behaviour, and I think that's come that came from um, you know being a director of marketing and pharmaceuticals. It's it sort of the good side, um, you know, trying to buy back my soul, <laughs> is, um, is recognizing that all good and bad things happen from behavior, not intent. So we need to influence people's behavior. And I think your book, uh, your Fox book, is a, is a nice example that, you know, when I looked at it, it's beautiful, but also you get empathy. And from that empathy, you want to get people to slow down if they're driving through a city or... You know, I view foxes very differently. In my behaviour to uh, seeing something and talking to people has changed because of it.
0: Mm, yeah, and that's, I guess, it. It's the hope. You know, mm. I think it's. Of, you know, I can be a cynic. I mean, I think we we all can, but cynicism doesn't really get you anywhere. Um, if you want to affect change and you've got a skill mm. and you've got some humility and you're good at building relationships and talking to people, then you can use those skills to highlight an issue together with, you know, sound science. And because, you know, one of the things that that Charlie Hamilton James said in a recent podcast, which really stuck with me, you know, this idea of raising awareness, he said he hates that phrase Mm -hmm. because he said the awareness is raised. You know, we Mm -hmm. know how bad the situation is. It's about taking action.
1: And look, having worked in pharmaceuticals in an area I worked in was oncology and back to raising awareness, I don't think there's virtually anyone on the planet Who doesn't know that smoking is bad for you? Still, a lot of people smoke, so it's about the behaviour change now. And you know, I'm not judging people if they want to smoke. You know, people's choices, but it's not about smoking causes cancer. It's about if you want to do something, changing the behaviour. And it's not about human induced climate change. It's about addressing that. Yeah. Now, as well,
0: and your story focused photography, kind of going back to age forty eight. Mm. which i hope you don't mind me telling the audience no. that was 12 years ago now
1: yeah I'm uh, 60 last week so um <laughs> congratulations okay. yeah. it's I, young I, I, I made no more i made it
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's young these days yeah, it's, no, mm-hmm. it's no it's no it it's it the new 40s <laughs> exactly um but yeah you you've i mean i've listed some of the you know the topics that you've photographed here some of the species you know f- flying foxes koalas wombats also, you know, people sur- you know, surrounding all of this work and platypuses. rescue work. Yeah, platypuses. Um, and are- it is,
1: for the listeners, it is platypuses, not platypi. I uh, <laughs> do need to make sure everyone understands that um, uh, because it's a Greek derivative, not Latin. Okay. But if you wanted to be perfectly correct, it'd be platypoides, but yeah. no one uses that. So it's platypuses as the plural.
0: And we can see Doug's yeah attention to detail here. This is, mm, bit, this is yeah. very important.
1: Bit of bit of a OCD, yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And you know what what drives you to shoot a certain species? You know, let's face it, they're all in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, why pick? You know, flying foxes, for example.
1: I, I think with this. Zo- Zoology degree, I get naturally curious and I fall in love with them because I'm naturally curious and the more I know about them, the more I fall in love with them and so the more I want to to help them. So I don't really strategically go out to pick a species except for the platypus and the platypus is something I always wanted to do because when I graduated as a zoologist, my very first research was on the diving physiology of platypuses and that's nearly 40 years ago and so i've always uh, loved them as a species they you know they're unique they're monitoring they lay eggs and uh they're they're pretty misunderstood and not really known um in as much that they're so secretive and um i wanted to raise awareness because they're sort of a, uh, um, a flagship species because they represent the health of a river if a river's not doing well um they're not doing well and also they're a little bit um i think the technical word is stuffed in in, <laughs> in as much that if you think of uh, platypuses the only way they can connect to each other to breed and genes and everything is through rivers and in australia we you know we we dam rivers we suck water out of them so it's a bit like blocking a freeway and so we've started to um fragment the population and i think that's something that was really important to talk about it, the, one of the top platypuses researchers in the world says, "You know, it's death by a thousand cuts." And I've always cared about platypuses, so I just wanted to to raise awareness. And um, I'm pleased to say that uh, it's uh, one of my images is going to appear on a stamp. I found out last week, wow. which is
0: pretty cool. That's so, amazing! Uh, nice to
1: raise their awareness. Yeah, yeah.
0: that's really really cool. Yeah. And do you, you know, when you're doing these stories, and obviously the the point is to get them out there and to educate and and inform people, but do you have any examples of of the success of this you know any idea of policy change because i know that's something that you're interested in as well
1: absolutely i i mean i I work with people to change policy but i think the best example um and again i'm a conservationist who takes photos so i work a lot behind the scenes on policy and conservation change so there was an issue in victoria where platypus were drowning in what's called opera house nets which are like a, a crustacean yabby Trap, And what would happen is fishermen will put these nets into the water to catch crustaceans, yabbies, sort of like little lobsters, if you don't know them, and uh, they would go in and then the platypuses would go, well, there's food, they would swim into the nets and drown. So brutal drownings. And then the platypus would start to rot. And then other crustaceans would go, great, there's meat, and it started eating the platypus, and another platypus would go in. And so it was like ghost fishing. And I was with a researcher one day, and we found five drowned platypuses in two nets, which is about half the population um, of the river. And at that stage, I just went, this is bullshit. You know, this is just outrageous. We've got to get these things banned. There are plenty of other alternatives. So I took some video, and I ended up getting in front of the ex- Um, premieres, the ex-premier of Victoria, uh, went to a function as a photographer, sort of snuck my, not snuck my way in, I got got my way in as the uh, photographer for free so I could have a chat to him and and pulled out the video and showed him and he was absolutely uh, amazed or outraged and he said, let me see what I can do and then we started networking and then a year later those nets were banned. But it was from that footage, it wasn't a great photo but it was using the power of imagery of showing five drowned platypuses in two opera house nets that that did it. So I I try and use my images um, as policy changes or awareness changes. Um, I recently, did a uh, kids' book on flying foxes that you've seen. Yeah, which you've kindly just
0: given yeah. to my daughter. So. Absolute pleasure,
1: yeah. and that's now in thirty percent of schools and in Australia and. Kids seem to love it, which is great. You know, I got a random email from a parent whose child had dressed up as a flying fox. I
0: think I saw this. This is on Instagram. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. It's so cute. Yeah,
1: and, 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 and to me, that change is getting children to fall in love with animals that are often vilified and, and not understood. And flying foxes have had a hard time with COVID, even though it didn't come from flying foxes as the recent data shows. And I say that with my microbiology hat on. Yeah. Um, and if you can get kids to fall in love with wildlife, I think that um, it gives us a little bit more of a hope for a future because the data shows that most people's values and attitudes are set by about the age of 10. Wow. Um, and so when we did the book, it was strategic to um, aim at an audience between five and 10. And
0: and was that the plan from the beginning? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, I, I did
1: um, a bit of psycho- child psychology earlier in my, in my life. And it is, you know, if you've ever seen the series seven up, you sort of know when a kid's about 10, You know which way. Now things do change, of course. If there's a traumatic event, uh, people's attitudes and values will change. But pretty much, it's about ten to eleven. They are set. So I basically thought, if I can get kids to fall in love with flying foxes by the age of ten, it's playing a long game, but it's an important game. So you know, for me, it's um, influencing the the younger generation is, is is a key strategy. So you know, that's something I've done.
0: Well, it's absolutely beautiful it's called life upside down mm. and um yeah that's yeah you know, i love the the imagery in it so full bleed you know beautifully designed by mm. your partner
1: yeah my partner heather kylie uh, uh designed it um i took the photos and together we did the words and australian geographic were kind enough to virtually sell it at cost I mean, making a little bit of profit, but it's 48 pages Full colour and it was $19 Australian.
0: Great. Well, we'll, we'll definitely put links <sighs> to it where people can buy it. Which is what probably £10. Yeah. No, yeah. That was absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, moving forward mm. a bit. So, you know, I think in your very relatively short career as a – I don't know, do you call yourself a, well, you don't call yourself a photographer, first of all. You call no, a, I, I, but, I call you know, myself
1: in, a conservation and, and animal welfare photojournalist.
0: Yeah. But you um, – got involved with the international league of conservation photographers for quite a few people on this podcast mm-hmm. who are also involved so can you tell us a bit about your your role with them and what you do
1: yeah i'm um uh lucky enough to be a senior fellow of the IL- ilcp and it has um some incredible world famous photographers on there so i'm not sure how i snuck in um,
0: so you still have imposter syndrome i yeah.
1: i always i always have imposter syndrome and i'm not being um humble. I I uh, when I was made a senior fellow, I remember having a chat to them going, is there a level below that that because I feel that I should I shouldn't be on the same level as Joel Satori. You know, I'm you know, I I, I feel wrong being at, at at that level. So can you put me a bit lower? And they go, <laughs> no, there isn't and <laughs> no, I no, okay. Um but my role on that is I'm um, lucky enough or unlucky enough. I think lucky enough to chair the uh, ethics committee. So we've just redone the um, ILCP ethics guidelines, and you know that, that's been great uh, because it's been able to bring people on a journey. But also, you know, having a, a master's of ethics and having taught ethics, it was probably a little bit um, easier for me to pull together a, a set of principles with a, with a team than others who, who didn't. And so that's been that's been really I've really uh, enjoyed doing that. It's probably my main contribution to them.
0: That's great, and sure, you know, it's your speciality for sure and can you talk just okay you don't have to go into great detail but i think a lot of photographers certainly i'm interested in you know this this idea in fact we were talking about this with your uh, life upside down book Mm. you know when you're looking at the glossary and you and you see these words you know like Mm. climate change pollen Mm. species and actually trying to describe those things Mm. without reading about it you know just from your head very difficult and Mm. so you know ethics i could have an idea of what that means but what what's the message that you're trying to get across to not only the members but Everyone who's working in this field of nature photography,
1: yeah, I think that's a really good question, and I guess most people when they're interviewed say that's a good question because it gives them time to <laughs> figure out an answer that uh, is well thought out. Um, I, I think, um, there's many type of ethicists, and I think I'm pretty much what you'd call a um, a virtue ethicist, which you know, okay, what's that? It's very Aristotelian, and okay, what's that? You know, it's what would a good person do, but I think it's about being kind and considerate if i had to boil it down now the the ethics principles don't specifically say that but if you go okay what's kind and considerate and kind of considerate to the people you work with kind of considerate to the wildlife so i'm starting to shift away in certain circumstances say from using flash and it depends on the animals i i see photos of say um a, a, a nocturnal animal where someone's blasted off flash and you sort of go okay so that animal's got incredibly sensitive eyes, um, so that's going to be painful. And then it's a short-term stress and you sort of go, okay, well, maybe it's okay, but it might blind it from feeding, from evading predators. And especially say in Australia, we've got gliding animals and I've seen photographers punch off a flash uh, with an animal mid-flight. And to me, that's the equivalent of walking into an airplane while a uh, pilot's about to land and punching off a full flash and going, good luck spotting that landing. So I think um, it's about thinking about those things. And I'm not I would never say never do it or don't, but it needs to be A, thought about, and secondly, justified. And if you can sort of go, look, this one photo will save a species and it's going to cause a bit of stress. I think if you can honestly, rationally justify it versus going, oh, it's just going to be a cool photo for no other reason than I've taken a cool photo, I think that's sort of the way I view things. So I'll never look at an individual photo and go, well, that's just ridiculous unless, you know, it really is ridiculous but I just think it's about being kind and compassionate. And again, thinking about the end game, and I think with photography, um, you'll notice in my captions, I'll often say taken taken under the supervision of wildlife experts or wildlife carers, just so people know that I just haven't taken the photo, but the animal welfare has been considered in that photo. Now, maybe the animal was a little bit stressed when the photo was taken, but if I'm with a wildlife expert, they can go, okay, I'm calling it Doug, or no, that's okay. It doesn't stress it because it's got a different visible spectrum or it's used to it or I'm taking it daylight. So I just think it's about being considerate and also thinking of the impact you have um, and the, I guess I'd say, the um, standards you set for others. You know, There's certain photos I've taken that I wouldn't take again because I'm worried it might set a bad example, and it's not that necessary. I mean, in my in my book, Life Upside Down, there's a, a, a photograph I've taken of a flying fox in captivity, and it looks like it was taken at night, but it's actually taken at the day with a black background, and the reason was so I could use a bit of flash, but because it was daytime um, and the pupils were um, more constrained, it wasn't stressful to it, although it looks like it was nighttime because it was to show what they do at night and it's all very explicit um i think that's the thing with photography is about being honest sure you know if, if you you know if you're gonna um do something just be honest you know i've had people who've contacted me and said oh doug i like that photo um but could you change it and i go well look if it's not going into press and it's for you and it's just going to hang on your wall and you're not going to say this is taken in the field i don't mind if someone photoshops something as long as it's totally explicit um but if you do a photo and you put it out there, and it's not what happened or what you saw, um, that's been deceitful. So I think, you know, I think being transparent and honest is really, really important, uh, especially when it comes to captioning. And I, I, I think, um, I don't think you can ever over caption <laughs> to be to be honest. And I'm pretty conscious of of trying to to do that and just give it extra information.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's interesting because I wonder whether some photographers think by being honest it's somehow restrictive but actually you can see in terms of what you can do with an animal do you know what i mean if Mm. you if you think if some photographers think oh i could get away with this as Mm. you know taking a photograph of an animal i'd probably pushed it a little bit too much but no one needs to know i'm not you know but Mm. the flip side of what i'm saying is that what you're doing is being really honest writing up detailed captions about your work and still Getting in competitions, still regularly being published in top publications such as the Guardian or whatever. Yeah. Um. So it's not like it's a hindrance to the actual quality of the photograph or the 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 regular right. output you're doing. It's actually, in in a way, that being pure well, and being it's, honest is helping. It's a bit
1: liberating. I could think of nothing worse than um, if, if if someone sort of did something dodgy with a photo and it did well and then they're hiding in fear to be found out. I mean, that, that, or they do get found yeah. out. Which, I, which I, has I, happened yeah, many in, times. In WPY, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it's not worth it. And I also think that, um, you know, in this time of fake news, the last thing we want is uh, fake conservation um, photography. I think uh, we want scientists to be trusted and we want photojournalists to be trusted. Again, if you're an art photographer and you collage things, great. Every, everyone knows it. I mean, anyone who watches Lord of the Rings – doesn't walk away thinking there's no CGI in that. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Yeah, sure. But it's about expectations and aligning and being, being uh, transparent and honest with those, and that's absolutely fine. I've seen some beautiful wildlife photos, and they've declared that there was Photoshop, and okay, if you want to buy that, great, but it's not going to be run in The Guardian or National Geographic, um, and that's okay as well. Yeah, you know, It's yeah. Been, you're being trustworthy, which, again, comes back
0: to virtue ethics, I guess. You know, what would a good person do? Yeah. I think it's nicely put like that. I was also interested in, in your approach. And again, a lot of the, um, the, one of the great things about running this podcast is I, you know, I get to dive in, you know, I'm mm. doing, I'm it's supposed to be, you know, altruistic. I'm doing it for the audience. I'm totally doing it for myself. I get to oh, meet well, that's, you. That's, and- that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we talked a little bit on, uh, when I met you from the station about, you know, trying to make it pay and mm. okay, whatever you have a mm. million dollars and then you have I, I, I didn't really i know i didn't really have a million. <laughs> i'm kidding and it's australian dollars so even if i did it's like <laughs> it's nothing sure but you do have to make it pay and mm. you know in your relatively again short career it's you, you, you go on a website and, and again we'll put the links up to it mm. there's you've got great information on there it's packed with stuff and lists of all your publications but it's mm. really varied and you seem like you're very active in terms of trying to get stuff out there and getting published What I know as a photographer is there's not a great deal of money just Mm -hmm. in getting work published and you have to do all sorts of other things. So Mm. how did you go about in from the beginning, okay, after this trip to Antarctica, I want to try and actually make a living from this. I want to make it pay.
1: Yeah, I I, I made the decision that what I was going to do two things. I was going to firstly work on the premise that I wouldn't go backwards in my mortgage. So if I could have a year – where I survived with food and experiences and didn't go backwards. And then interestingly, I started trying to add in a value to my experience. And I know that sounds sort of a bit crazy, but to give you a a nice example, I was lucky enough to go to South Georgia to document the recreation of Shackleton's Crossing with Tim Jarvis. Now to do that, I I had to train two hours a day for nearly a year I um, had a whole lot of skills, and you know that's not paid for. Um, and I went on this trip and documented, and it was a total of um, three weeks away. And a short movie's been made, and you know I didn't make very much at all for you know uh, I think I've calculated it was something like eight dollars an hour for all hmm. that for all that work. But to do that trip, if I was self funding, would have cost me fifty thousand dollars. And so I suddenly go, well, I've just been paid. And then secondly, I camped on South Georgia. I climbed glaciers on South Georgia. Virtually no one's allowed to do that. So let's make that $50,000 a $100,000 experience because I had this incredible experience. And then I spent three weeks with Tim Flannery, who wrote The Weather um, Makers, um, uh, who's a top climate scientist. So I had all these really, really cool experiences. So I started to add in, I guess, conceptually, if I had to do that, what's that worth? So for me, it wasn't about making money, but it was not about going backwards and then having the the best experience. You know, I I think in my role, I think I have the worst paid best job in the world. And uh, but again, I'm, I'm 60 and I have the luxury of having nearly paid off my mortgage, and I think that's sort of different to someone who's who's starting out. But a key thing for me, whatever anyone's doing, is fairness, and that's that if someone wants your images, you should be paid fairly for them, and that's just a value I have for everything. You know, if, if someone's painting a house or doing anything. I think they should be paid fairly. You know, I've had experiences where CEOs of not-for-profits who are on 200,000 a year have said, oh, can we have a, you know, one of your photos, but we can't afford to pay you. And I go, well, you're paid. So why should I not be paid? And please feel free to write me a personal check and I'll give you a tax invoice. Cause that's only fair. But then I've had um, organizations where no one's on a salary and they're all doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And they want an image for um, a campaign and no one's getting paid and so i think well i'm happy to donate that as well and to me that's just fair and i guess and and with generosity and i think they're the two things i always think about what would a generous person do and what would a um a fair person do and um that sort of makes the decisions easier for me but i do have the luxury of not having a huge mortgage and five kids at school. So it's it's a little bit easier than yeah. maybe those who, who and don't. Of
0: course, there's not a one size fits all when it comes to it. But what you say and what you said to me when we were walking back, it it, it seems fair. All yeah. we all we're asking for is to be paid fairly.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The the problem is is the and something I said to you is that does I feel that there needs to be a kind of a, a grassroots movement in that. You know, how do we get to be paid fairly in in the industry. How do we educate young people to know what their image is worth, mm. and not that you know a, a credit is mandatory? That should never be an incentive. That should just be a given. You know. Well, in Australia, it's law. Right. Um, it's I literally sent an email last week uh,
1: to a publication uh, who will remain nameless for legal reasons on my side, <laughs> um, uh, but a news publication, and um, they just wrote "image supplied," and under the Australian copyright law uh 1968 um moral rights uh exist and they have to be given away you can't assume you don't have them so if you don't give credit unless the artists have said don't credit me you've literally broken the law if you um, uh, misrepresent the image you have literally broken the law so in australia it's pretty good that way yeah
0: there that is really good yeah i mean it's something that you know, my partner always says to me, "You know, you need to do something about it." Because, you know, I, it happens to me, it happens to you, it happens to uh, all of us in the field. And at the moment, I don't. I mean, I, I don't have the time or the energy to do it. But it's, let it's, me it's,
1: let me send you a stock letter, and and I literally just change the, dear sir, madam, whoever it is, and the link, and it's standard. And yeah. I, and I I did not did one on the plane. It was literally cut and paste, and you sent it off. Yeah. And I think. Um,
0: but the more of us that do that you know i think the more of the the, the more the, the the attitude will change mm. hopefully because i think you know photography obviously it has its value but it's been hugely devalued mm. by the by the internet by everybody being a photographer um but the good thing is you know with we're both with Na- nature picture library mm. and you know they are a functioning picture library in very very difficult times yes. as well and you know they have employ great picture researchers Mm. and you know people that have science backgrounds zoology backgrounds and um and they're doing it and they're making it pay and obviously that always helps when it comes to negotiation because they're doing it on on your behalf behalf. yeah but yeah i think it's it's one of the things i definitely you know i do feel really strongly about that we need to keep the conversation going but but also like getting it out there that you know for younger people listening to this you know just don't give your work away for free and less, like you know, you talked about. There are these circumstances where, yeah, I, I think about- you
1: know, generosity, if it if it's generosity, can be fine, and win wins are fine, but don't do it just for the sake of putting it out there because I don't think um, it's always a win win. You know, I, I think I was telling the story. I had someone say, um, "If you give me." the um, image will credit you. And I said, come paint my house, we'll credit you. <laughs> you know, and the, the conversation changed really, really quickly because it just didn't seem fair. But I have given my images to, you know, small small not-for-profits where no one's on a salary because I felt like being generous and that's okay as well. But I think as a standard practice, it's um, it's unfair on other photographers yep. uh, as, as well if you, if you make the – whole concept of high level photography, low level. I've I've had the conversation where someone said, I can't pay for your image. And I say, well, if you think it's worthless, you probably don't want to use it. And I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, but what they are literally saying is it's worthless because we're not paying for it. Or if they say we haven't got a budget, I honestly say to them, well, that's a budgeting issue, not a value issue. And, you know, I'd like a new car that's a budgeting issue not that give me the car for 10 bucks because i haven't been able to budget for it
0: yeah so yeah no beautifully put well hopefully this you know will resonate through and Mm. you know change a few hearts and minds which is what we're trying to do with yeah with everything um so yeah all of these different species different stories different publications ilcp ethics you you know i often ask photographers how do you find time for it all um but you're also shooting. You've also shooting video as as well. And and anyone a whole who, new world of yeah. pain. I've, I, I think
1: I'm too old to really to, to get into it. But I've look. I've started. I was asked by a production house whether I did it, and I went. I'll give it a shot. Um, and I I have found that I, I won't probably be a become a cinematographer. But in the TikTok generation, fifteen to twenty second second clips seem to be really really engaging. And I think it depends on the. Um, the piece i just don't think it's just putting you know a, a soundtrack to some boring imagery but sometimes um moving footage tells a story better and so for me um it's something that i haven't done haven't been good at and i said it's a it's a whole new world of of pain uh, <laughs> but i think i think important
0: and storage a whole new world of a whole story. new world <laughs>
1: of storage and metadata and uh, learning and um yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, is all I can say. Uh,
0: but you're also a qualified drone pilot. And, yes. And I've seen your lovely images of Lake Air, which mm-hmm. got some great coverage again. Which was
1: not drone, that was plane. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that all was right. shot at 2,000 feet. So a lot of people think it's drone, and no, that's um me in you know, a Cessna 172 with the door off. uh strapped in, um, flying over like air, because that is is high altitude. So no, that's um, I'm not sure whether I'm complimented or insulted to people who think it's it's, it's drone.
0: Uh, I'm going to go go insulted, actually. (laughs) I guess these days when you're thinking about budget, you know, the gone are the days when you hire helicopters and planes to Mm. get your aerials. Everyone's doing it with 4K drones. But can you talk a bit about the background? that project because it's quite different, you know, shooting landscapes from 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 the air and why you did it in the first place.
1: Oh look, the first place was just uh serendipitous that um I had to be in Adelaide for judging a competition and a friend of mine is a, a I'd say an aerial expert, uh said, Well I'm I'm at Lake Air, and which is a thousand kilometers away but straight north from Adelaide. And I he said, But I'm driving up from Adelaide to, to get there, um, spare seat in the plane. You know, if, I, if you're flying early, I'll take you up there. And I'd I'd never done aerial photography and I went Sure. So, you know, I had to pay, you know, we split the cost of the plane. So, yeah, it was was expensive, but we shot these shots that were unique because no one was up there at the time. The uh, rains had started to fill like air, but normally it comes from the north, but these were desert storms that had filled it. So it was just a a unique uh, situation, and we shot a whole lot of stuff, and then the Guardian ran it. And then from that, for some reason, I got known – to be a Lake Air aerial photographer. I don't know, and I'm not. So but I don't know how that happened. And then I got contacted by some researchers for a, a TV special on, um, on the impacts of oil and gas mining north of the lake because Lake Air is the uh, one of the biggest and probably uh, one of the most pristine desert lakes in the world. And uh, good old lucky us, we've got, I think it's 862 gas and oil wells north of it, which the floods come through and uh there's just a lot of issue it blocks the floods. there's leakage and and um i got contacted to do some video and some stills of that and the, the stills were quite easy but the video was uh, a little bit tough again had to uh, hired the same pilot with a cessna 172 and uh shooting uh shooting uh video yeah i mean also
0: we shouldn't assume that everybody knows about lake air and the issues so can you talk a bit about the the, the background with that because obviously you're not yeah. just, you're not going to go to lake air and take pretty pictures there's got to be a story behind yeah it, right? yeah
1: so so as it lake, lake air is um is a big inland lake that's normally dry it's a it's a salt pan and it's it's beautiful and it's huge uh, i think it's 100 miles 100 kilometers wide and uh, i forget how um long but we'll call it you know 100 by 100 Um and it's got its own natural environment. It's pristine, and occasionally floods will come through from what's known as a channel country and fill it up. And from that, crustaceans and eggs um, hatch, and then it becomes live with wildlife. It's it's one of those sort of Attenborough middle of the desert. You you get pelicans there. You know, in the middle of the Australian desert, is absolutely frogs. You know, come out from underneath, and it is incredible. And uh, but to the north. Uh, east of it, um, we have some uh, gas reserves and some oil reserves. And uh, whenever there's those, there's um, mining. And, of course, when the floodwaters come down from the northeast, the, the danger is that uh, those get flooded. So there's issues there. But also because of the roads they build, it changes the, the flow of the, the floods. And so where water's meant to go, it doesn't. And so I got contacted by one of the uh, head researchers, Professor Um kingsford who said can you do some footage and i said yeah i'd love to so we we flew up there and um i had one of my uh few um life death experiences doing that because i was <laughs> in the plane and we were the doors were off and i had my seatbelt on and but i had a loose so i could move around i had my foot out of the plane on the on the strut where you uh would normally stand if you were parachuting and i'm shooting away and we're banking and the pilot was an expert low-level pilot and um we were going pretty slow and I said, can you bank? And we're banking, blah, blah, blah. And I said, God, my seatbelt's loose. How, how loose is it? He goes, it's come undone. So we were banking and I was literally foot, the only thing that was keeping me in the plane was my foot on the strut wow. uh, for about probably five minutes. And what had happened is my camera strap, as I'd turned around, it caught the, uh, the latch and just obviously undone oh, it at some stage. And that was wow. one of those um, afterwards, got the sweats and went, wow, that would have, that would have been um, interesting. So I've had a, had a couple of those, but,
0: uh, I mean, you would have been really famous. Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I said to him, I said, what, what? And he goes, and he goes, I said, what were you, th- what was your thoughts? And he goes, my first thought was, man, the paperwork I'd have to do if you <laughs> fell out of my airplane. Like, yeah. Fair call. <laughs> but, um, uh, would have raised attention about the issue we were covering. Yes. Yeah. I guess, you know? No doubt. So, yeah. Look, having said that, um, my partner, we often joke about it that you know if I was to die, my my fear is the eulogy that you know I would rather that than the eulogy to read something like Doug was backed over in a car park while someone was looking at their mobile phone. you know <laughs> that that would be the worst eulogy in history, of course. um, so yeah, you know, not that I want to fall out of an airplane, no. but um, I think uh, that was a that was a come to God moment.
0: Yeah. Was it then after that moment that you decided that you were going to fly drones instead? No, no, that, <laughs> that, that, that
1: was only uh, six weeks ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Wow. So uh, no, no, it's, um, that was, uh, yeah, I've had a couple of those, but yeah, I'm 60, so I've, I've made it so far.
0: Brilliant. Good stuff. Right, so I also wanted to talk about, I mean, there's so many things that, that you have done in the last, you know, 12 years and I wanted to talk, or can you tell us? So I was interested and curious about the framing effect. I
1: would love to talk about the framing effect. Um, having worked in pharmaceuticals, a key area I worked in was communication and science communication. And, and a, an epiphany I had early on when I was on the board of Environment Victoria that scientists are awful communicators. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, if they were such great communicators, we wouldn't be talking about climate change. I mean, I, when I was a zoologist, I knew about the impacts of climate change in the early 80s. And so there's been this problem that a lot of people think more data changes behavior and i can tell you it doesn't and again we come back to smoking and we all know but the, and so the framing effect interestingly it's not photography the framing effect the the concept of framing and communication it's a meta communication concept where how we frame an issue changes how we view it so for example if someone said to me this water is 99 percent pure i could go what you mean it's one percent polluted and would you drink it if i said it was one percent polluted and It changes how people uh, engage in an issue. And a nice one with uh, climate change is, you know, people talk about um, by, uh, say, 2030, we need to do dot, dot, dot. And I go, well, that's seven years. That's, uh, well, you mean in less than 2,500 days we've got an issue? So framing it as days versus years is very, very different. And so I set up a consultancy to help not-for-profits and scientists communicate using frames um, a lot better. And one of the ones I'm really passionate about is the poorly used frame habitat loss because we don't lose habitat. Uh, Again, I remember having a chat to the the CEO of a not-for-profit who will remain nameless and he said, oh, we're losing the Great Barrier Reef. And I said, well, I can give you the coordinates. We're not losing it. It's being destroyed. And a frame like loss is very... Neutral. It's it's yeah. it's a noun. Uh, there's no moral responsibility. I mean, if you said if you let me one of your cameras and I said, "Oh, Matt, look, I'm so sorry, I've lost it." Sure, you'd be annoyed. But if I came back and said, "Look, I destroyed it," there's some type yeah. of action and moral accountability. And whether I destroyed it deliberately or I destroyed it by negligence, it's a very very different frame. Of
0: course, it is. and,
1: and it changes the argument. Yeah, you know, and a couple of other sort of frames.
0: But it's a little uh, also a little bit like. Um, you know George Monbiot talking about wanting to change the, even the, the words climate change to climate breakdown because change oh, yeah. well, is so, you know, it's a pass, quite a passive word isn't it well, loss it's almost like oh what a shame well, we're losing this
1: yeah well I've, I've got a sheet um, I've been pulling together the last seven years called uh, Frames to Embrace Frames to Replace and monbalt's works in there as well because you know he has some really um, interesting frames uh, a, a recent one that I've sort of had an epiphany about we talk about uh, natural disasters and I've sort of gone, well, unless it's an earthquake or um, a volcano, because we've impacted the environment, we've changed the environment, is it natural anymore? Is, is, are, are these natural disasters or are these climate change driven disasters and therefore human climate change driven disasters? You know, people sometimes, you know, talk to conservationists and go, you're a tree hugger. And I go, well, you're a concrete hugger. <laughs> that's, a, that's a reframe. It's yeah. like, I'd rather be a tree hugger than a concrete hugger. So framing... Is is very much about um, being honest, but just literally framing things in a way that will get people to view the world through a different lens, and hopefully from the person's perspective, a more uh, appropriate lens. And again, I, you know, when I mentioned road trauma, that's a different frame to roadkill. Because roadkill doesn't, whilst it's bad, the pain's over. Trauma is really, really different. So, my consultancy that I, uh, you know, do part time, but also with all my captioning, I'm really conscious of the framing of how I frame key uh pieces of information.
0: Yeah, and making these changes you're hoping that someone who might read Road Trauma versus Road Road Kill. It just jolts them. Because yeah. they just I think you just become desensitized to these words, especially in our field. You just you know you read all this stuff all the time. Yeah. But by reframing it, you yeah. You know.
1: I mean, look, even if, you know, for the, the underwater photographers, when I when I hear the the frame bycatch, you know, yeah. to me it's a little bit you know you know when you listen to war stories and they talk about collateral damage when a kindergarten's been blown up, and, you know, collateral damage doesn't really cover what happened, Um, bycatch doesn't really like it's a oops yeah you know it's sure. like bang you, it's
0: exonerating of responsibility yeah and yeah. and you, know, you
1: can't tell me. You, Fishermen don't know when they fish in certain areas. There'll be, you know, let's call it collateral damage for fun. You know, they'll, 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 yeah, you're right. There'll be bycatch, and so it's not a, it, it, it makes it an oops, and it's not an oops. <laughs> it's, you know it's going to happen. Yeah, you know. And if yeah. I drove through a a, a a a school crossing at a speed and ran someone over and went oops when I knew it was going to happen, I would I'd be held morally accountable. So I think framing is a great way to engage. People to what I think is the right way to view things,
0: and what are you doing with it? What's the What's the plan? How long um, has, How long has it been going, and where are you going? with Oh, it? I,
1: I consult wherever I go. I talk to people. I uh, as I've as I've got to sixty, I can uh, send the angry old man emails of dear editor. I believe sure. so, but I do. I know they're not angry, but when I deal when I speak with photo editors, um, magazines, um, I'll actually send them a framing list. I, I sometimes in the in the work I do. I'll actually say uh, in the in, in the um, licensing contract you cannot use the word habitat. You cannot use the frame habitat loss. Um, I don't like people calling animals critters. It's really demeaning. I think call them animals. Call them wildlife. But critter, you know, if I called someone a critter, they wouldn't like it. So I, I have a list of words where I sometimes put in my contract, depending on who I'm dealing with. I actually say you can't have the image if you're going to say critter. You can't have the image if you're going to use the frame habitat loss. Yeah, so I'm just great. trying to change um, people's how they communicate f- to to help the
0: environment. Brilliant, that's great, Doug. Um, so we did something new uh, this time around. We put it put it out to the audience. You saw on social media ah, a couple of days ago. Yeah, I got a couple cool. of questions from some uh, audience members cool. from someone called Jules, who says Doug is a master of using artificial light in the field. I'd love insight on how that process works.
1: Wow. Artificial light in the field. Um, I'm using a lot um, now continuous lighting. I
0: like the way you ignored master.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. It's funny. A lot of my work, people think it's artificial light. Um, and it's not because I don't do a lot of night photography. So that's an, that's a, an interesting question. I've done some work with platypuses early on. Uh, it will always be with a softbox, box. Um, but you know, I I can, take a photo during the day and make it look like at night um, but sorry the question was how
0: do I how do I yeah she just wants to know your you know the insight on on, on the process I mean I think you know looking, okay. at, looking so at a lot of your work for example you know in, in the conservation setting or your hmm. wombat picture yeah you know there's some fill flash in there I'm assuming Uh, no
1: not the wombat wow. one no okay. that's natural light right. I mean if you look at my last few posts I think um, it's natural light I've gone for that very Rembrandt room light Um, I'll I guess so my first consideration is to animal welfare and I'll speak to the experts of is it okay it will virtually always be through a softbox. if you look at the specs of my images I shoot really high ISO which you know I'd like not to but I realize the higher my ISO the lower the flash has to be so the yeah. lower the intensity one of the key things I consider with flash I call it the light lighting differential and I'm not sure if that's a correct term but I basically go what's the ambient light and what's the difference of the flash so you ma- imagine shooting a flash at night the differential to what the animal will be is really high you know it's from blackness to not whereas during the day it's like a glitter and um, or a sparkle which i don't think would bother it so i think um a lot about that uh, and so that's the first thing i think about and it always has to i always it to be soft and i want it to look like i've nearly used nothing um and I bounce a lot if I do, so I sort of fill the room if, if, it's, if it's fulfilling. But, um, you know, occasionally I've done some softbox work, but I'm sort of moving away, away from that. I did, I did a shoot just before I came out here, and um, I waited till the um, clouds had gone and the room was filled with natural light and it was yeah. bounced around on that because I, I think it's nicer as well. And that's also
0: the amazing thing, like you mentioned, just the capability of cameras now being able mm. to shoot a high ISOs. Um, you yeah, know, you can keep you can it makes life a little bit more simple, doesn't yeah. it? But I like I like
1: if if I'm using fill, I now prefer continuous just for that for that reason that um I think it's kinder on the wildlife. Yeah.
0: yeah as sure.
1: well. Uh, and again, um not always. I, I won't be a hypocrite and I'll be very transparent, but I will now stop and think. Am i taking this for fun or am i taking this because i can get a conservation message out there and if i if i do it just because that'll look like a cool shot i probably won't do it because if i go look i realize that you know there might be a stress level of one out of ten and i will speak to the experts and go what do you think of the guy it'll be fine um then yeah sure because i think um i can get something positive out of it yeah for the wildlife not for me
0: yeah sure and actually we haven't talked Eating one from your lovely wombat image, which is in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year this year. This is a. Uh, maybe b- I
1: should be complimented to do with that—that that you think I use flash and I don't. Yeah, I don't, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think of the metadata, and I'm pretty sure I didn't. It'll, it'll, yeah. be, it'll when people look at the Wildlife Photographer of the Year book. It says whether the flash is or isn't, but I'm I'm going to say I'm ninety percent certain. I, I didn't
0: sure well look yeah we can check that out but also i think what you said is true and that's certainly my always my mission when when using flashes you you light it almost like there's no flash yeah and the idea is that you know you're you know, you're not blitzing the animal you're just mm. you're knocking out some shadows getting a bit of separation from the background and if you can do it in a very subtle way that's, yeah. that's the best way
1: and, and if you do need to use a bit of flash you know I, I like um shooting from behind because a it gives some depth um and secondly it's less stressful on the the wildlife because you know they're not seeing it per se yeah you know sure. that sort of room lighting and side lighting
0: yeah as well so when i asked you about coming on this podcast you sent me some lovely images did i of, of the wombats yeah okay. and uh so couldn't you know we, Wh- which which ones well we're gonna we, they were um
1: was the one of the girl
0: holding it? yeah one of the girl holding it, it was a lovely dark one with close-up of the hands holding a small very looked like a very young oh that, that was a very, yeah. okay. That was this is all, all part of the same was that, that, that
1: was all natural light. That was only yeah. shot um, two weeks ago. Yeah. And, and basically uh, that lady whose name I've forgotten, that's awful, uh, is a second-year veterinary student and looking after a wombat whose um, mother had been hit by a car. And a really nice backstory that a policeman drove past the wombat, stopped, checked the pouch, there was a baby wombat in there he called a wildlife rescuer and the only one could get there had to drive nearly a hundred kilometers wow from out of Melbourne into Melbourne because there were no other ones available took it to another carrier so this person did about 200k return trip so you know I think it's a beautiful story of humanity of the policeman stopping the wildlife carer driving that distance and then this second year vet girl was um was in between feeding I think and she was sitting near a window and it was the lighting was was perfect, but for that one, uh, I can guarantee there's no flash. Yeah, it is all window lighting, yeah, and I and I love that because it is quite dramatic. If you if you get it right,
0: yeah, of course. Uh, but this story in itself is this, and again, a little bit of, about your process of, of shooting. Do you, you know you find out you find out about these stories, you get the access, and do you will you just try and go in and get as much as you can, and then think about sending it off to a magazine or whoever to try and get that work published, or is this something that you'll spend more time you'll go back and revisit and make more connections and build the narrative and build the story.
1: Yeah. I will Because it's a, a single one, uh, Wombat, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at doing a longer term piece on Wombat's and road trauma and I'm going to cover, um, they suffer from mange. Um, so it'll be a single piece about, you know, maybe the life of Wombat's, but for me, a single image, partly I'll shoot that to get the story out there again about road trauma. I mean, there's two parts of that story that I think are really important. One is, slow down you know if you if you hit a wombat check the pouch that's that story that comes out the other thing is the wonderful care and love that people go to to look after these baby wombats now sadly a week later that wombat died Mm. um it, it, it had a hernia and they believe it got the hernia because when the mother was killed Before it got rescued, the weight of the mother squashed it and caused a hernia, Mm. and uh, they weren't sure whether it survived or not. So about three days later, it died, which so is really really sad. But I think that's important as well. If someone had checked the pouch earlier, maybe. So even checking the pouch, so do it quickly. Uh, So to me, it's again getting messages out there to get the what's the behaviour. I want people to slow down. That's probably not going to happen, but I want if anyone sees a dead uh, marsupial on the side of the road, check the pouch or call someone who could. So for that um it's an important image you know look i'll probably enter it into a competition and you know why do i enter competitions in my youth it was totally for ego and fame and and recognition i'll be totally candid now it's to get conservation stories out there and competitions are a great way to get uh, messages out there i've got a series in this year's wild screen which is called fighting the heat and it's about the stress that flying foxes are going under due to heat stress events but there's a series of messages in there from heat stress events hurt animals um, you know animals can't go inside when it's hot they don't have air conditioning so there's that and then on the other side it's the wonderful work that parks victoria people do and wildlife victoria people do and other rescuers do to look after animals so i think those stories are important to hopefully motivate people to do something a on climate change and b support those carers or become a carer again driving behavior yeah which I don't think answered the exact question you no, asked. No, but it's but, great. It's lovely. But hearing. it is, it, it is a, a, competitions are great for that. They yeah. get international awareness.
0: No, it's lovely hearing you talk about that in such a passionate yeah. way. But I, mean, I still have an ego. It yeah. is still great. Well, don't that's get me important. Wrong. You, know, you, you need to, know, we need to have egos. I'm very,
1: very honored to, you know, be in the top 100 <laughs> this year and last year. And, you know, I'd, it'd be disingenuous for me not to sure. say, wow, when I get that email. Of course. But after that, I sit back and go, great, I can make a difference. And, you know, like coming on podcasts like this, um, yeah, I strategically was going to talk about animal welfare and <laughs> checking wombat pouches and considerations when you use flash.
0: Yeah, and I, I've I've always said that you know like a, with with our Fox Book even before the Fox Book was published. You know, I just talked to neighbours here on the street, and you know I'd made these short films and had you know just release some stuff on. Springwatch watch digital series and a couple of people came up to me and said oh yeah you know it's made me think twice about shooting them off when i see mm. them and that, that tiny little difference is like worth all the time that i'd put into making those short yeah. films and you think yeah okay well that's good you know you're making that little difference
1: and i think to your that, that person's question about flash i think you know if i said one thing it's works for the animals and in its use be gentle yeah with the use of flash it, it will be gentle for the animal and it will make a more beautiful and, and gentle lighting is beautiful lighting generally if you're doing wildlife anyway
0: yeah that's right
1: and if you're doing a sports person harsh lighting maybe you know is a very action-oriented but i think gentleness and kindness and yeah. is a good way to think about it yeah. and again i do need to say i don't always get it right i make mistakes and i'm totally happy to be called up uh when when i do but you know i try
0: yeah good stuff So we're going to wrap up but what i was curious about given your astonishing career in the last 12 <laughs> years you think about what you want to do in the next 12
1: if i can survive that would be great <laughs> be 72 good heavens that's a that's a really interesting question
0: uh look i think
1: um for me it's pretty simple i want to encourage people to treat the natural world more kindly and that may be just with photography that may be with with policy i i like working close to home i think for me it's really important to work close to home for the reasons lower carbon footprint is obviously one you have time to do things but you know your your fox shoot is what 200 meters from your house but also i think working close to home gives you a right to stick your nose in and say you know it's not the person coming from overseas saying you should do this so i i you know, I know it's ironic that I've traveled 12,000 kilometers to talk about tra- working close to home. But for me, it's, it is about working close to home. And so, you know, I can drive policy. I can catch up with, if I catch up with a politician, I can not only do it because they care, because I, can say, hang on, you're my elected member. I recently got a scout hall um, after, oh, yeah, let's call it bullying them. I've been badgering them pretty hard to get rid of all their barbed wire around their facility because it was around fruit trees and bats and mm. owls and possums were getting caught up in it. We know that barbed wire has very little impact on preventing crime because if you're a professional criminal, you're going to take wire cutters. And uh, So what it does do is it stops the random person jumping the fence. So you don't need three bar- strands, you only need one. And in this place, the fence was high enough, they didn't even need barbed wire, so they changed it. And long answer to your question it's uh, my next 12 years will be working on issues closer to home and it will be conservation and I'll, and I'll use imagery for that whether it's film or not um but it will be you know trying to make the world just a little bit better or if not better make it less worse than it would 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 otherwise otherwise have been
0: that's been such a pleasure oh no,
1: thanks for the opportunity to ramble <laughs>
0: Really, really great. And now, yeah, you've flown 12,000 miles here. Of course, we're not all perfect, but you've you know got some good things to look forward to. You've got Wild Screen this week, Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Yeah. And um, yeah, and now we're going to go and have some dinner. But hopefully you'll stay awake for that.
1: Yeah, what is it? It's uh, four o'clock in the morning where I come from.
0: So that'll be fun. <laughs> well, I can tell you, everyone, he's looking great. And, yeah. uh, well, yeah, really we, appreciate- we call it breakfast.
1: We'll reframe it as breakfast and I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. early breakfast, I'm good. Thanks again, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you for what you do, I should say, as well and uh, best of luck with your uh, your book which is beautiful and i'm getting a copy so i suggest everyone else go have a look at one and you will fall in love
0: with the foxes as well oh well thanks so much really appreciate it all right many thanks to doug not only did he manage to stay awake and deliver a great interview i can tell you he didn't fall asleep in his food either And what a treat, such a warm and generous guy doing so much amazing work and light clay bolt so much more than photography too. So I do hope you'll follow him. If you don't already, he's pretty active on social media. You can check out all the links on his page on my site. And I'm wishing you all a very happy Christmas. I hope you're enjoying yourselves. hope this is a good time to kick back, listen to some podcasts. I've had some really great guests this year. And I've got some great ones, of course, lined up again next year. So stay tuned, keep sharing it. Um, Oh, and also to let you know, for UK listeners, on the 28th of December, that's Wednesday at eight o'clock, I filmed a sequence of the foxes that I photographed for many years um, and got some great footage and it's going out on the BBC. It's a whole new series, a three-part documentary, all about dogs in the wild. Um, I haven't seen it so I'm super excited to check it out and I hope you can too. Alright, see you in 2023. Goodbye.